you don't really need a message this morning because the message is just what we've been doing. It's called intimacy with God. That's beyond this. It's a heart issue. And uh, as I was sitting there, I was reminded that in Greek, there are two words for time. One is chronos, and that's when you look at your watch and you say from 9 till approximately 10.15, we'll be sitting in the sanctuary, we'll worship God, we'll listen to the scriptures, we'll respond to him, we'll do what God is leading us to do. The other one is kairos, and kairos is a moment. It is a moment where God meets with you, and you can't put a time limit on that. It's just what he does. And you have Kairos moments in your life. You can look back over them when you got married, maybe when you had your first child, when you fell in love. All of that reminds you that that was not a Kronos moment. That's a Kairos moment. And so every time God's word is open to us, he is anticipating a Kairos moment in us so that just our hearts are open. And when I came in this morning, I could hear some sounds down the hallway. And I thought, Lord, I hear those in Orleans too. I hear them in Cornwall. And it's the saints gathering to pray. Why do we pray? Number one, for intimacy with him. And then really to say, Lord, these are the things you've put on our heart to reach out to you with. You know, scripture tells us, cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. And once we grab grab hold of that, we realize that even in services, we don't want it to be just same old, same old. Each time we gather, we want to say, Lord, you want to add another piece to our journey in you. You want to do something in us. And so our hearts are open. Let's take a moment. Father, our hearts are open. We have been worshiping you in spirit and truth. Lord, there's a moment of intimacy there's a moment where we sense even your breath upon us. And we say thank you for drawing close to us. And Lord, right now we draw close to you. And we thank you for this series in your word that we're going through in the parables that your son taught us. And Lord, today as we look at the ten virgins, thank you for unpacking that in such a way as that you speak to every one of our hearts about how near and dear we are to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. As we're doing the parables, you have to understand there's 46 of them in the scriptures. We're doing 17, and we still have three more to go. Uh, but when you lay the parables down in chronological order, you begin to see the purpose of God in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And for example, the very first parable is found in Matthew 9. It's about new cloth and old cloth. It's about new wine in an old wineskin. And what is he doing? He's starting to unveil what will happen in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and why these parables were so important that you've got to see that God is doing something fresh. And then he goes into four parables on the sowing of seed, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on today. And then he begins to focus on the kingdom. We pray it all the time in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a divine connection 
to what God is doing. And then we get into all of the ones from the lost sheep all the way down to the ten servants. And we say to ourselves, okay, all of those parables have to do with how we live. And how we live is really important. And so as you step through each parable, you realize that Jesus is instructing his disciples on how he wants them to live, and he's also warning unbelievers of what is yet to come. And so we get to that point today when we're looking at the nine prophetic or um, apocalyptic parables, and today we're going to look at the uh, ten virgins. We've already looked at sheep and goats. We've looked at prodigal son. We've looked at the fig tree. We've looked at a number of things that have told us God is trying to make it clear from the very opening parable where he's unveiling what is yet to come and now to the closing parables where he's telling us to get ready. Why? Because there's a Kairos moment in history that is starting to unfold and he said you won't know the day or the hour but you'll know the season. You'll have a spiritual perception of what is going on in the world all around you, and you'll be able to remember what I taught you so that your heart is prepared and is not stirred. And so today when we look at the ten virgins, there's five that are wise and five that are foolish. So let's take a moment and we'll go through the Matthew 25, 1 to 13. The Bible starts with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. This parable is certainly about preparing for and expecting the bridegroom to come. And I don't know about you, but if you're not excited about that, I'm going to give an altar call at the end, and you can come and get right with God. Because you need to be excited about that. That is one of the greatest messages in the scriptures, that he came the first time with the promise that he would come again. And he would gather his people unto himself for all eternity. And so we look at time and we say, wow, I'm going to live 70 years or 80 years. And that is just a blip on the screen when it comes to the issue of eternity. And so these 10 virgins or 10 maidens or 10 bridesmaids, uh, they've never been married. They are not connected to a man. And Jesus uses that example that they're anticipating the bridegroom to come. And when you saw the images of all of the women watching, and he's talking about some of the customs of the day and the nuances that he's explaining, they get it. They understand exactly what he's saying because that was a known process for weddings in those days. There was always a betrothal period. There was always a ketubah that was signed between two families. There was always the knowledge that the groom went back to prepare a place for his bride. There was always the knowledge that it was the father of the groom that told his son when it was time and when it was ready for him to go get his bride, that the house was prepared and everything was ready. They understand that completely. So he's talking in a language that they can get. But it's not just natural now. There's a spiritual component to it. And he's helping them to pick up on that. Remember he said five were wise and five were foolish. Uh, he's not referring to their intellectual ability. But he's determining what's been sown in their hearts as they've walked together. 
as they have been hearing him minister, as he's been sharing God's word with them. Seed has been constantly going out. And Pastor Jason talked to us about the start of the mustard seed and how tiny it was in terms of a promise that God made to Adam and Eve a long time ago that we're seeing now that promise of redemption in Christ has filled the earth. It's all over the earth. It's in every nation. And when you watch the news and you see North Korea, I want you to know there are believers in North Korea. When you see China, there are 50 million believers in China. In other words, God's word can never be contained. Why? Because there are different kinds of soil when that seed is sown. And some of that seed is sown on rocky soil and not much happens. It may spring up for a moment or two, but not much happens. Then there's that hard ground where everybody's walking on it. I tried it on my grass one time and I sowed some what I called steroid seed. I mean, this stuff could knock a tree down, and I put it on my lawn, nothing. So I understood I had really hard ground. And then you've got good soil. So as the seed is being sown, Jesus says that seed is going to multiply 30, 60, 100-fold. So when you and I look at what he's saying... We have to come to the realization that his word has gone forth, and because it has, it's been sown in the hearts of men and women in every generation since he came and until he comes again. And if you're good soil, you start to bear good fruit. What kind of soil has your heart been for the sowing of God's word, especially when it comes to the fact that he's coming again? So when we look at a wise virgin and a foolish one, the wise one means that they have foresight, they have discernment of the time they're living in. Remember I talked about Kairos and Kronos? The Kairos moment, the season that they're living in as wise virgins, they're anticipating the coming of the bridegroom. And so they're making the preparations. They're discerning the moment well, and they're spiritually aware. And then when it comes to the foolish ones, Jesus is really saying is they have no discernment whatsoever. They have no foresight. They are not understanding the season that they're living in. And for sure, they're not very spiritually aware. So he calls one group wise and one group foolish. Do you remember when he talked about when you build your house, you can be a wise builder or a foolish builder? And the wise builder builds it on solid rock so that any storm that comes, the house stays. But if you build it on sand, when the storm comes, it's washed away. So he uses these contrasts all the time. Remember, we talked about sheep and goats and a wise son and a foolish son. So these contrasts are there, and it's up to us to be discerning and to understand, Lord, these are two distinct types of maidens, but they come from very different backgrounds in the sense of how was their heart prepared to receive the word? And their behavior is very different at a certain moment in time when what's expected of them is supposed to come to the surface and it doesn't and so it says in verse 3 the foolish took their lamps but they didn't take any oil with them the wise not only took their lamps not only had the lamps filled with oil but took extra flasks along with them 
You know, when you're uh, early on in your journey in, in Christ, he really helps you. I mean, I remember driving my car on empty, which seemed for like an hour. And you just keep praying, oh, God, fill the tank, fill the tank. And the Lord is speaking to you, you should have filled the tank. I'll get you to the gas station, but don't do this again. And then there comes a point that we, we sort of depend on God doing everything for us that we should be doing. We have our part in this process. And so the foolish virgins are deciding, well, we don't need to have the flask. That their behavior sets them apart from the wise. They understand that something is going on, but, well, there'll be an opportunity to do it. Let me read John 7. On the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart. Remember the issues of life Jesus talked about. Come out of the heart. But out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Not a trickle, but a river of living water. As he said this, he talked about the Holy Spirit. And those who believed in him were going to receive the Holy Spirit. He hadn't been given yet, but the moment that Jesus is glorified, Father sends the promised Holy Spirit to fill the heart of the believer so that there's an overflowing. That's a wise believer who understands, I have to be absolutely filled with the Holy Spirit because I need my lamp to burn brightly and I need everything that's possible for the journey that's ahead of me. I don't know how long it's going to be, so I want to continually be filled. So they needed to fill their lamps with oil because when the call came, behold the bridegroom, instantly they would have to wake up, trim their lamps, and start out on the journey. Gathering all of those people that were coming from the groom's home to the bride's home and then heading back to the groom's home, they had no idea how long the journey would be. But the wise took into consideration we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. And so he's really teaching a parable now of consequences. The wise virgins had a full lamp of oil for their assignment, and they had a flask just in case. It got longer than they anticipated. The foolish didn't prepare, and so when the call comes, they find out all they've got is enough for the journey that they're on with the oil in their little lamp, and they've got nothing else to be filling it with. Wise, foolish. Jesus is making that clear. Our bodies are like lamps, the Scripture tells us. They're meant to be temples of the Holy Spirit filled to overflowing. Here's what it says in Ephesians. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Here we come again making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Contrast again, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In the Greek, that says a continuous filling. Be being filled. And so you might say, well... I had a Kairos moment with Jesus back in 67 where he filled me with the Spirit. Well, what have you been doing since? Every single day, 
for the journey that is ahead of us. We need to be being filled. And someone says, why do we need to be being filled? Because we leak. We share, we pray, we give out, we witness, we serve, we do something. And as we're doing that, we're constantly saying, Lord, direct our steps. We're asking for wisdom. We're asking for grace. We're asking for your ability inside of us to do what we cannot do on our own. So the wise and foolish are themes throughout the whole of Scripture. Jesus even taught that your eye is the lamp of your body. He said that in Matthew 6. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. How many know that's good? For your body to be filled with light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Sometimes we say, well, the eyes are the window of the soul. You can look into some people's eyes and they're deader than a doornail. And you can look into other people's eyes and they're just on fire. I remember years ago I had the opportunity to take a pastor from the city and we went to California to meet with Richard Wormbrandt in his home. And when Frank opened the door and let us in, I saw Richard sitting in his wheelchair with all kinds of tubes attached to his body. And Frank said, do you know that Richard's been like this for the last three years? And I said, can we talk with him? He said, sure, he can chat with you all day if you want. So I sit down and I look at him, and as soon as I see his eyes, I think, oh, Jesus, those are the fieriest eyes I have ever seen in my life. There's just something aglow, alive, bright. He's anticipating the coming of the Lord in his life. Most of us will go to be with the Lord through the door of death. But there is coming a moment in human history where a trumpet's going to sound, a voice is going to be heard, and the dead in Christ are going to arise. So I'm looking at Richard, and I see the flames coming out of his eyes. And guess what happens when you see people like that? You ask yourself, am I even saved? I mean, they're just so incredible. And so I knew at that moment that the, his whole body was filled with light, because he understood what it meant to have eyes for Jesus, to have eyes for God's word, to have eyes for the working of the Holy Spirit, to have eyes to see the Kairos moment that he's living in. All of that, we get to the end of our discussions together, and I said, Richard, could we just have communion together? And Frank taps me on the shoulder and says, Richard is fed by a tube. He hasn't had any uh, hard food for over three years. And so Richard goes, it's okay. I got to ask Pastor Boucher a question. And he said, did you read my book? I said, yes, Richard, I read your book. I understood 14 years he was in a prison cell in Romania, and the lights were on 24-7, and the sound of communist propaganda was being blasted into his cell 24-7, and he learned to kind of separate all of that from his relationship to God. And he said to me, we had no instruments, but I would rattle my chains, and I would sing. Then he said to me, we can have communion if you can answer this question. I took bread, 
But I had no bread, and I broke it, and I partook, and I remembered him. I took a cup, and I blessed it, but I had no cup. And I drank, and I remembered the blood that was shed for the remission of my sins. And then he leaned over in his wheelchair, and he said, Pastor Boucher, did I have communion? Because what he was saying is the answer that you give me will determine whether or not we have communion. And I said, Richard, it's not about the elements. It's about the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. Yes, you had communion. Saw a little sparkle in his eye. And then he said, so then we can have communion. You see, folks, there's something about the presence of God the intimacy of him at work in your heart and life. And so when you understand that, you begin to say, Lord, I want to be spiritually alive. I don't want to be spiritually dead. I want everything in me to anticipate and expect your presence 24-7. When I go to bed, I want to wake up in the middle of the night still singing and praising you. I want to wake up thinking of scripture. I want to wake up just recognizing that you're here with me. Do you remember the story of the man by the name of Saul of Tarsus? Very religious, very well-trained, but does not have a personal relationship with Jesus. He's on the road to kill more Christians because he thinks they're a cult, and suddenly he's knocked to the ground, and his eyes are filled with scales, and now he can't see. And now he's being led into the city. And he says that he went into the city and he couldn't see. He didn't know what was happening. And God spoke to a man by the name of Ananias and said, Go lay your hands on him that he might see. And I will fill him with the Holy Spirit. So Saul of Tarsus gets knocked to the ground, bright light all around him. And now he's got scales on his eyes. When you're a foolish virgin, you have scales on your eyes. You can't see. You don't understand what's going on. But I want you to know, Jesus is the great ophthalmologist. He can touch your eyes and scales are gone. Acts 9 says immediately when his hands, when Ananias' hands were laid on him, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see, and you know what he did next? He got up and got baptized. That's when you know it's genuine. That's when you know that he has gone from foolish to wise. He has accepted the call of God on his life, and he's looked back and said, I consider all that is done for the surpassing greatness and the knowledge of who God is in Jesus Christ. And so when those scales came off, he became a wise virgin. He became someone that anticipated the soon coming of the Lord. And he then penned these final words. These are words that comforted the church at Thessalonica. And he says, it didn't come from my heart. These words came from the heart of God. And they're meant to comfort. They're meant to encourage. They're meant to build up. They're meant to make you anticipate. For we declared to you by the word of the Lord that we who were alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede or go ahead of those who have fallen asleep or have died in the past. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. How many know when the bridegroom comes for his bride, that is a joyful moment? That's an exciting moment. That's a moment that brings great comfort to our hearts and to our lives because then we know we are the wise virgins. He's coming for us to take us to be where he is. And so that's a comfort, as Paul wrote that, for every generation. Jesus promised he would return. And so you and I are living in what, as you heard the, the moment ago just on the screen, the bridegroom delayed, and they became drowsy and slept. How many know sleeping's normal? Drowsiness is even normal, but not spiritual drowsiness. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. So the question we have to ask, if you're wise, if you're foolish, what do you do in the divine delays of God? What do you do when he doesn't answer your prayer right away? What do you do when you feel like your belief in him, you've been disappointed and you feel offended that he hasn't come through? He makes it very clear that when there's a divine delay, there's a danger if you're foolish. Not when you're wise. You know, sometimes when I share some of these things, people ask me, Pastor B, are you pre, mid, or post-tribulation? And I said, well, when I read the ten virgins, I'm a midnight believer. I don't know when he's coming, but he promised he'd come at midnight. So it's midnight somewhere, but it's daytime somewhere else. In other words, he can come at any time he pleases. It's not up to us to decide when he comes. He's coming on his own terms. And even when Jesus said, even the son doesn't know because it's part of the custom. It's the father's responsibility to say to the son, everything's ready, go get your bride. So I just want you to know something. God's not telling us if it's pre-mid or post. And it doesn't matter how much you fast and you pray because you want to know and you think you have a special revelation. He's not telling you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. When is he coming? It belongs to the Lord. So you might as well just be wise, not be foolish. Be ready and be steady in your love and in your worship of God. And so Titus 2 says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone, the opportunities there, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So there's the Kairos moment again. 
Here we are in this present age. We don't know how long this is going to go. The Bible tells us this is a season of grace. So we rest in that. And then verse 13 in Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's your anticipation. There is a blessed hope that arises within the wise virgins. They're anticipating, and they're ready. They've got their lamps filled. They've got their flasks. They're dressed. They're sleeping, but they're alert. How many mothers do we have here? When you go to sleep at night and your husband's beside you and you have a new baby and 2 o'clock in the morning the baby goes, you're up. I mean, you hear that little, and you're there. Your husband, the whole house could shake, and he doesn't hear. There's something about a wise virgin that will hear. They're just, you're tuned in. And when you're tuned in, you realize, wow, Lord, because I'm wise, I'm going to stay faithful to my marital contract with the bridegroom, with my ketubah. I am not going to succumb to temptation. I am not going to break the covenant relationship I have with him because it's like the story of Mary and Joseph. They have a marital contract. They are betrothed to one another. They are legally married, but they have not consummated their marriage yet. So there is a divine delay for that unfolding of God's purpose and God's plan. And that's the same for you and the same for me. Even though there are going to be mockers, even in the house and outside the house, who will say things like, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things just keep continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Don't listen to the mockers. Don't listen to the deniers. Listen to what the scriptures teach you. Affirm the contract that you have with the bridegroom and that you stay faithful to him and anticipate his soon return. Why? Because preparation time is never wasted time in the life of a believer. No matter what you invest as you wait for him, that's an investment in that which is eternal. That's you saying to him, Jesus, my heart is holy for you, 100% for you. I'm not interested in other lovers. I'm only interested in you. You have captured my heart, and we have a contract together. You know, when you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, that is a deposit on what is yet to come. That's the seal of his signature over your life. That's why Holy Spirit is so important in each and every one of us. And then you get to that moment in time, and you say, Lord, could this be the Kairos moment? Could this be the time of your soon return? And what does he do? He tells you to look out and see what is going on in the world. This parable in chapter 25 follows Jesus' description in chapter 24 of all the things that you need to be aware of of what's coming at the end of time. 
When you see things on the horizon like Russia and Iran and Turkey and China and, and you begin to say, wow, there are chess pieces going everywhere. There's a greater instability now than there's ever been. Lord, what season is this? Remember, we don't know the time of the hour, but he's saying in 24, you can understand the season we're in by all of these events taking place. And when you see these events starting to take place, then you need to be aware that you're a very important generation that's alive in the earth at a kairos moment in the purposes and the plans of God. And so if you're wise, you get alert to those things. You're like the mother listening. You're sensitive to what's going on. It's not just same old, same old. It's an anticipation with the Spirit of God in your heart and your life. So John 14 says, don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And when I prepare that place, when it's ready... I'm going to come back and take you to be with myself so that we can be together forever. How many know Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh and God cannot lie? So when he tells you that he's going to come back and he's going to take you to himself, you can take that to the bank. You can trust his word. He is absolutely faithful and absolutely true. So then when this sound came... The virgins rose and they all trimmed their lamps. In other words, they made sure the wick was clear so that the brightness of the oil burning could be, could be done. And they stood up. All of them stood up. They all heard the sound. But the wise ones were ready and the foolish ones were not. And the foolish ones end up saying, give me some of your oil. It would be like me seeing one of you as a prayer warrior and saying, give me some of your passion for prayer. You can't do it. You can't borrow someone else's faith. You can't borrow someone else's work of the Holy Spirit in them. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. Your lamp must be filled. Your flask must be filled. And when we look at that portion of Scripture, we think, man, well, they weren't really nice and they weren't very generous to give to the other. They made it clear, if we share this with you, none of us are going to get there. We've made the preparations. We've done what's right. We're obedient to what's required. Therefore, we're going to continue on in the journey. We're not going to lose focus. And so you see that and you say to yourself, wow, if I can't borrow someone else's experience in God, then I need to get my own. Ding dong. Wise. You can come to a service and it can be powerful in worship and powerful in preaching and prayer, but you can be an outsider. You can just watch it all happening, being an observer, and never partake of it. That's the seed going out and the soil being revealed. You want to be able to say, Lord, I want everything you have for me. I want to press in and worship. You know, sometimes when I look around, I see people with their hands in their pocket during worship, and I think, oh, Jesus, you raised your hands on the cross for me. At least in a worship service, I can raise my hands in love for you. I can honor you 
in, in the presence of my brothers and sisters in the sanctuary. There are so many things that go on. When you listen to the word of God, there might be one thing that's said from Scripture, one thing that's prayed in a service that God captures your heart. And when he captures your heart, that's a kairos moment for you. That's a season of change for you. That's something that is personal for you. And that moment can change the rest of the moments in your life. That's all it takes. Just a willingness in your heart to say, Lord, I don't want to be foolish. I want to be wise. I want to continue this covenant relationship that we have together. I want, Lord, your Holy Spirit to guide my understanding in the decisions that I'm making every single day. Lord, I want to understand what you're doing. You know, you think of the culture and you think of how many things are really awkward in the culture. And you realize before God judges the culture, he'll judge his church. Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so as the parable unfolds, there comes a moment that the foolish go and try to buy oil. Seems like they do get some because they end up at the door. The door's already closed. The wedding's already taking place. The celebrations are happening. They knock on the door. And what did they hear from behind the door? I don't know you. We have no relationship. I've never known you. That's exactly what happened in Noah's day. If you can study it in Genesis 7, I'm sure Noah said, Lord, why a door? Why do you want me to put a small door on here? And then the Bible tells us that when they, everything was ready, when that Kairos moment had come for the era to change, God shut them in, closed the door. Can you imagine what would have gone through the minds of those outside the ark when the first little droplets of rain came on their faces? They would have known right at that moment, even though he had been preaching as a preacher of righteousness for almost 100 years, telling them what was to come, telling them why the ark was being built. At that moment, the, the shock that would have been in their hearts, the desperation at that moment, and it's the same as the foolish virgin saying, Lord, open to us, but I never knew you. And so he ends by saying, you better watch. Therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. And so God is very serious about our readiness for the coming of his son. And no one knows the day or the hour. And so that's why you stay prepared all the time. I'll end with this. Since we belong to the day. Let's be sober, put on the, the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of hope of our salvation. For God has not destined the wise to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus, who died for us that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing.
So, Father, we are grateful that you constantly challenge us to be wise and not be foolish, to be prepared, to be ready, to anticipate your soon return, to have stirring in our hearts a blessed hope, a hope of your return, a hope of your presence in our lives that we're experiencing just in a small measure in our times together. And so, Father, we are grateful for all that you're doing in these parables in the midst of Life Center. Thank you, Lord, that we can become a church that understands Kairos moments and that we're not just functioning out of Kronos time. Lord, every time we gather, we want to meet with you. Every time we worship, we want to meet with you. And every time we pray, we want to meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.